If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. But first, picking up on that news conference from yesterday, BC's top officials are pushing back on critics who say there is no sign, saying there is absolutely no proof, no data that drugs are being diverted from the safe supply. Well, Jennifer Charlesworth is BC's rep for children and youth and joins us. Jennifer Charlesworth, you use some very strong terms, very strong language to describe chatter about youth supposedly getting access to illicit drugs via the Safer Supply program. You call that polarizing rhetoric. They are strong words and they were intentionally chosen. One of the things that the coroner, chief coroner and uh, provincial health officer and our colleagues in First Nations Health Authority and other authorities have, have noticed is that there is very polarizing rhetoric that's in the media and that's in uh, the legislature and various other places that is saying definitively diverted safe supply is causing the problem. And what we were saying is that that then takes our attention away from what's actually happening. So we have to take a look at the data. We have to not demonize one aspect of a robust array of voluntary services. And we have to better understand what the dynamics are so that we can intervene appropriately. So we were not seeing any evidence in our data that safe supply diversion was causing some of the challenges that young people were experiencing. So if we focus all our attention on safe supply and and blame that, then it actually takes our attention away from the real causes of the challenges. Where should we direct our attention then? Excellent question. So one of the things to understand about young people is that every generation has used substances. So this is not out of line of what young people experiment or do in order to uh, either fit in, be part of their peer group, or deal with the kinds of emotional challenges that they're facing. The difference is the toxicity of the drugs. So number one, we have to address the the upstream um, development of these drugs and stay very on top of what are the new combinations, what's happening, how do we respond to that. So that's one thing. The other thing is, and I think this is important for us all to understand, is that many, many, many young people are using substances to deal with emotional pain. They're struggling. They're dealing with mental health concerns. They're dealing with experience of unbelonging, not doing not fitting in at school, not fitting in with their peer group. They might be experiencing bullying. They might be experiencing transitions in the home or stress in the home. So substances end up being a a response to other things. So we have to go and figure out what's behind the use of substances that's creating such vulnerability for a child. Has that always been the case or is there something new or different? in 2023 than we've seen in years in the past? Well, 2023, we are um, in a so-called post-pandemic world. The COVID-19 pandemic not only changed the nature of the drug toxicity, it became much more toxic. It also affected the well-being of many people, and children were particularly impacted. 
Because developmentally, a young person, they're wired to be around their peers. They're wired to be kind of figuring things out in a social context. And they need to have a sense of belonging. So we're seeing significant impacts arising from the COVID pandemic and all the other things around that, you know, the the instability, the uncertainty, um, and that's affecting young people's mental health. So there's no question in my mind that COVID's had an impact. Um, And what we're seeing a lot is young people experience that as a loss, a loss of opportunities, a loss of friendships, a loss of, you know, the typical milestones in life. And we haven't really addressed that experience of loss for kids. So COVID pandemic has definitely impacted our kiddos. Is there a way to address that loss? Yes. Well, I think one of the most important things that we hear from young people and that makes sense what we know about brain development is connection. So building strong connections, a sense of belonging. So schools have a role, recreation centers have a role, communities have a role, extended family has a role. So young people uh, that are really have been struggling to get back into community that are socially um, uh, anxious and, and isolating, we need to try and figure out ways of gently and respectfully drawing them back into connection and into community. Uh, depression, as many people say, the, the antidote to depression isn't happiness or the, the alternative isn't happiness, it's connection. And so that's a very important thing. And that's an all hands on deck. It's not something that needs to just be the responsibility of the professional therapists and whatnot, but it's thinking about how do we celebrate those milestones? How do we connect kids? Uh, how do we support them in their peer relationships, uh, welcome family in, et cetera? Who do you have to reach out to as a partner? First step is to understand the phenomenon. So our key partners, of course, are the provincial health officer, the ministries of mental health and addictions, children and family development, the chief coroner, and the health authorities, et cetera. So those are important, BC Centre for Substance Use. They're important partners that help us understand what's going on, what's the phenomenon, what's the data telling us, what is some of the evidence suggesting what's working and what's not working. That's one place. The other thing that's so important for us in the work that we do, because we're, of course, supporting young people through individual advocacy, but also monitoring injuries and deaths, um, our partners and are, are the community-based agencies and the frontline service providers. They're the ones that have the finger on the pulse of what's going on in their communities because every community is different. Um, and then our partners are also the young people. They are very wise. They have some insights into what's going on. And in fact, we are in the midst of a social media campaign right now about what we know thus far about the toxic drug supply and how it's affecting young people. And then young people's voices will be through the social media campaign as it unfolds to help us understand what's going on for young people and then what do they think and what do the experts think is necessary to change. That's all very important and you've detailed the causes and concerns behind the motivation for taking these drugs. But is there also a place for cutting off access? Are you concerned that there is still too much access to the drugs. Yes. Well, there's, I think there's some uh, differentiation to be made there. The access to the illicit supply, absolutely. I don't want any of that illicit supply in the, in the, out there. So uh, then, of course, there's a public safety consideration. There are um, important things to address in terms of dealers, manufacturers, and organized crime. 
they're the ones that are driving the uh, uh, availability of illicit supplies. So work upstream, not the small dealers, not the ones that are have um, small sub- amounts of substance in order for their personal use. So I support the decriminalization for small amounts for uh, personal use of adults. However, the illicit supply and that stream, absolutely, there needs to be a tremendous amount of effort to try and disrupt that and to try and stay ahead of their very quick innovation. Now, then the other part is we do need some, uh, for some people with opioid use disorders or with significant substance use disorders, then we need to try and provide them until they're ready to seek treatment or alternatives to give them safer supplies. So for young people, uh, opioid agonist therapy, there might be some things there. But there are some kids who are very deeply into their addiction and are not yet ready. I want to keep them alive until they are ready to go for treatment. Are you optimistic that we can get uh, ahead of this as an issue? Well, I wouldn't have been in this field for 46 years if I didn't have hope for change. (laughs) Um, So I remain hopeful However, I think that's one of the reasons we wanted to speak out yesterday is let's keep our focus on what we know, the data, and be, develop public policy that's responsive to the ever-changing dynamic and complex dynamic that we're in. But we also have to be willing to try things, evaluate, and figure out if it's making a difference, and keep iterating. The dealers and organized crime and the manufacturers are fast at innovation, which is an odd thing to say, but they are. They're staying ahead of us, and we need to, as I say, it's an all-hands-on-deck. we got to figure this out. we got to come together rather than, you know, throw rocks at one another, and we got to figure this one out. Then I'm hopeful. Absolutely. There's lots of, but BC is blessed with incredible researchers, um, uh, practitioners, um, addictions medicine specialists. We are so lucky in BC. If we come together, I do believe we can we can affect the the, uh, the crisis that we're in. First, flag it in for Mike. That news conference yesterday, BC officials pushing back on the critics of the safe supply system, saying no sign that the drugs are being diverted. No proof, nothing whatsoever along those lines. In fact, BC's chief coroner says toxicology tests show. Hydromorphone has not been present in any significant number in those deaths at all. Well, let's bring in Sarah Blythe. She is the executive director of the Overdose Prevention Society. Sarah, always a pleasure to have you on. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Uh, What do you make of some of these uh, comments from both sides? Well, if there was any issue, uh, you know, that I could see, uh, I'm in, you know, I'm, I'm, working to save lives. So that's my primary concern. So if I if I saw any issues from the coroner or any experts or even any data that came in um, of just increased use um, and increased deaths, that would be a very concerning thing to me. So I haven't seen that. But what really concerns me is um, it's just politics. It's politicians um, trying to find uh, something that'll turn the tide of election and um, and and scare everyone and uh, so it's it's very concerning because um, there's no truth to it but it's very sad and um, you know and then I have to you know like I've, I speak to people every day and yeah. uh, even my son who was in high school who went to Britannia 
Um, there's drugs uh, in and around Britannia. Kids know about drugs, and they've never he'd never heard of hydromorphone. Um, so, you know, inner city school students aren't hearing about it. Um, if it became an issue, I think that would be something to talk about, but it's not one as right as of now. Yet we did have a high-profile death with a father speaking out about it, the loss of his daughter, 14 years yeah. old, who was addicted to hydromorphone. Um, tell me about that drug specifically. What do we know about it, and where does it play in? Well, it's it's um, something that's being prescribed to people uh, that are using more toxic drugs that are, you know, street drugs. Um, and, and also it is for pain. Seniors sometimes use it. Um, but, you know, look at what people are using on the street. Fentanyl is what people are dying from, toxic fentanyl. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's, it's a way better situation than having, uh, you know, endless people dying from, from what, the, you know, statistically is saying and the coroner is saying, and we have to trust our coroner. Um, not an elected person, but a professional who looks at, you know, sees these things. And um, it's not turning up. Uh, it's fentanyl that's actually really killing people. So we really need to get away from, fent- you know, the fentanyl on the street. And the most um, effective toxic. way to do that is to transition over to things like the hydromorphone in what you're seeing, isn't it? And do it yeah. quickly, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of cases, we're even lucky if we can get someone to go from the toxic street drugs because they're so strong onto something like hydromorphone. Um, it's it's just we are really in a terrible situation right now, and uh, and safe supply is important. Um, de- you know, detox on demand, getting people into detox when they want to, um, getting people pain relief when they're in detox, uh, men, you know, helping people with severe mental health is, is important, but you know, these issues that are election issues that come up, um, that it's just really difficult to see because some of these programs might get cut, which will lead people to go back to the street, um, and, and use some of the toxic supply and die. So it's really a life or death situation. And, and I really think that instead of playing politics with it, people have to really come together to do what's right by the people that are suffering the most. Are you optimistic that we can get a handle on this? Well, I, you know, I, I think there's just so much stigma uh, attached to drug use that people are just not treating it like the medical health crisis that it is. And um, so it's, you know, there are some small wins, like some safe supply programs and, uh, you know, just looking at the provincial government wanting to open more detox on demand. Um, some of that looks promising, but, you know, until we do it, we need to do a, a gigantic amount of work to be able to get past this. And in the end, uh, you know, it will be cheaper to not have a crisis. We've got ambulances. I live on the main in Hastings. There's yeah. ambulances going day and night. Um, there's now there's gang activity because of drugs. There's, um, you know, sex trade workers that um, could be on a safe supply of hydromorphone as opposed to, you know, dealing with dangerous people and, and, and dangerous situations. Sarah, thank you so much for your yeah. time. You you mentioned the downtown east side. I also uh, want to uh, mention that even where I live, out in Clayton Heights in Surrey, it is yeah. a real issue. It's everywhere. Sarah Blythe, yeah. thank you so much. Okay, take care. Thank you.
And it's Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. On the show, we have been talking about yesterday's news conference where there was a lot of power behind the podium. Some of the top experts, BC officials, pushing back on critics of the safe supply system, seeing no sign that drugs are being diverted. They said there's no data to back that up. But all of this is coming out after a very heart-filled story came out last week. One where a father shared his story of the loss of a 14-year-old girl, a daughter who was addicted to hydromorphone. And I think in order to complete this story, we have to circle back to Greg Sword because his story is important. His concerns are important. He's with us now. And Greg, first of all, of course, my deepest condolences to you. I know it's a loss that will continue to be with you. I'm sorry about what happened with your daughter. Thank you. Greg, you've heard some of these comments yesterday. And as a father who lost a 14-year-old to an overdose, a 14-year-old, you know, who was addicted to hydromorphone, what what goes through your mind when you hear what the BC coroner, the public health officer, and the children's advocate are saying? I'm sick to my stomach with the bondages that they keep on putting on their eyes, thinking that they're helping people. And they're not. All they're doing is supplying drugs to the children because all my daughter's friends can tell you exactly what they do every day that they want to get some hydromorphine. They go on the sky train, go down to East uh, Hastings, get off at the waves, and uh, people start approaching them, or they'll just walk down asking for dillies. And if they don't have the dillies on them, they'll walk into a pharmacy and pick them up and come out and sell them for $5 a hit. And they get back on the SkyTrain, head right back out to Port Coquitlam or Surrey or wherever they need to go, and they sell them to their friends. And when this happens, and you hear the stories of this happening repeatedly with uh, friends of your daughter, and then you hear the top experts talking about the data not backing it up, what goes through your mind um, do you think that they just are overlooking something? They just don't want to look at because they brought in this policy where they're trying to save lives. I get it. I understand. But if they go, we made a mistake, they look bad. And then they have to answer hard, serious questions that they don't want to answer. So it's easier to deny, deny, deny than to actually look at the group. I had never heard of the drug hydromorphine until uh, the coroner called me and told me what was in my daughter's system. Because when he called up, he goes, she had cocaine, MDMA, and hydromorphine. I was like, okay, I know two of those. What's the third one? Without having any clue about what this thing was. And then when they explained it to me, it's like, how the hell is she getting this? And I would talk to her friends would finally open up to me after the death and everything. I'm like, what is this? And they're like, they're dillies. I'm like, what's a dilly? Like, it's a hydromorphine. It's a street language. We go from... They start off with what they would call the bars, which is street Xanax. So they would get that, and then they moved on to this harder one that would give them the bigger high. Because most of these kids do have mental illness issues that we don't want to look at. A lot of these girls were shut down for two years because of the pandemic. And we opened up the doors two years later. Go ahead. Well, a teenage girl going into check, high school, check, the anxiety that was hitting them, they didn't know what to do. And they didn't want to reach out for help to any of the parents or counselors or anything. 
and people introduced them to this hydromorphine that would take away all their pain. So my daughter started to take at night. Yeah. She wasn't dumb about it. She didn't want to disappoint me. So she would hide it from me. So I'm up at 5 o'clock in the morning. I'm usually in bed about 9, 10 o'clock. So I go to bed. Well, she'd be in her bedroom, and if she's having a sleepover, they'd pop home at that point. So I wouldn't know. I'd wake up next morning. They're sound asleep. Okay, good. And I'd leave. Not having a clue that this was even in our community. We're talking with Greg Sword, 14-year-old Camilla's daughter overdosed and died last August after becoming addicted to hydromorphine. And that's a drug her friends say they often acquired through the drug users who were defrauding Vancouver's safer supply programs. When you hear, Greg, that uh, there is no defrauding, um, have has anyone reached out to you? We heard all that power behind the podium. But have you heard from uh, Bonnie Henry? Have you heard from the chief coroner or anybody uh, actually talking to you about your story after it appeared in the National Post and elsewhere? No, no one's reached out to me. The only one who's reached out to me is CKNW after this post. Um, I have talked to Vancouver Sun and Global News and CBC National, but none of our officials have reached out to talk to me or ask me about my experience or what I have heard going on or what I've seen going on with other kids. Because I would go in to get my daughter out of parks, and I'd be watching um, just handing these things back and forth like candy. And the cops are powerless to stop this because they look at me after my daughter died. It's under a criminal investigation right now. I've heard from the lead detective once when I went in for my statement. I haven't heard a word since. They've got her cell phone for evidence. And there's pictures of them with drugs in their hands, uh, the paraphernalia. And that's the only contact I've ever had with anyone. That was back uh September was with the cops. Now, Bonnie Hendry, the public health officer, said that the program actually does need to be reviewed. What do you make of that? I think she's finally opened up her eyes that they've made a mistake. They rushed this out trying to fix a problem that is rampant because so many people are suffering from mental health issues, and what's the easiest way to do it? Escapism. So it's either video games, or drugs are the two easiest things to get in BC right now. So you go to one, and we're trying to fix it. But do you go to an alcoholic and go, hey, you drink vodka. Here's a bottle of rum to cure your alcoholism. No, that would be the dumbest plan ever. So going from, oh, you're on heroin? Let's give you this other opiate to help you with your cravings. Instead of trying to really get down to the problem and clean up the streets and get people sober again, we just want to treat a problem with another problem. I know it's a tough one to piece together, especially when you're going through the mourning process, the loss of a daughter. But from the best of your understanding, what was her drug journey? Did it start with hydromorphine or did it start elsewhere? She started off like a typical teenage girl with marijuana and pot. Uh, then she started to experiment with a bit more, and she ended up uh, overdosing on fentanyl uh, almost a year before she passed away. So at that point, we were in the hospital, and I had a drug counselor come in. And I'm talking to the drug counselor, and this drug counselor, in her professional opinion, 
told my daughter to stop doing fentanyl, but she should continue on doing marijuana. And I sat there, looked at her, and went, excuse me, I have issues with this. And she goes, well, in my professional opinion, it's okay for children to keep on doing marijuana. And at that, it gave my daughter the power, so she continued on marijuana. Then she tried heroin, tried cocaine, uh, gone to MDMA, and then she discovered hydromorphine was the last drug that she started. And she was on the road to recovery. She was looking forward to school. She was looking forward to get back into everything. But she had anxiety that she wouldn't talk to me about. And she would talk to her friends. And her and her friends decided the best thing for anxiety was to take hydromorphine at night to help them sleep. Taking the advice of friends, what could have helped, do you think, in retrospect? What would have worked? Anything different? A program. A program to get these kids in because once they're into the system of taking drugs or not, there's no help for them because a parent in BC cannot commit their child to any programs between the age of 12 and 18. The child has to ask for help. And I was sitting with one counselor. I'm like, isn't this an outcry for help? We're in the hospital. She's overdosed. This is an outcry for help. She has to ask verbally. I was like, no teenage girl's going to ever ask for help verbally well, then there's nothing we can do. And that's what I got from every place I reached out to. Nothing we can do, nothing we can do, nothing we can do. The only place I was willing to take my daughter was a private company up in Penticton. It was $17,000 a month with no guarantees. And it is Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. Just before the break, we were talking with Greg Sword, who's still with us. He's the man who lost a 14-year-old daughter addicted to hydromorphine. And this comes... Our interview with him after yesterday, BC officials pushing back on safe supply critics saying there's no sign, no proof that the drugs are being diverted. A very different view to kind of circle back and complete the story here. And we thank Greg for sharing with us. Greg, we need to know more about your daughter. And I know that this is not an easy thing for you to talk about, but it puts a face on a real victim in this crisis. Tell me about her. Oh, fun-loving. All she wanted to do was make her friends happy. uh, Fearless. Willing to do anything for a laugh. Just wanted to fit in so bad. So she would hang out with friends at the mall. Just be a typical teenage girl until the pandemic. And then you could see a complete change in her uh, demeanor. She became more reserved, more quiet, didn't know how to interact with people. And Sorry, go on. And yeah, and when she came out of it, she was more seemed more angry at the world and didn't know how to uh, express her feelings properly. And she got into just a group that wanted to experiment with different things and try to enjoy life again. And make up time. We've heard so-called experts talking about the pandemic and how difficult that is on the psychology of even adults. But of course, uh-huh. kids, 14 years old and dealing with that, even younger at the time. Um, when we talk about some of her struggles, it must have been tough for you to see as a father. Oh, it was horrible because you would see her 
uh, come out as a zombie and it'd be like, you're trying to figure out what she's on. And you talk to her friends trying to figure out what she was doing. And all they'd ever tell you is, Oh, she's on pot. It's like, no, no, no. Pot does not make you look like you're a walking dead. Like, what is she on? She was not coherent. She was out of it whenever she did that stuff. But I didn't even know about this drug. I didn't even know the science to look for for uh, children to be on this. Uh, and if I did, I would have been like, okay, there's some red flags here. She's on something a lot heavier than just pot. But when all the answers I'm getting from her and her friends is pot, it's like, okay, then how much are you doing? Like, what doses are you doing? You talked a little bit about this before the break, but one of the things that you've identified is if there was a program, some sort of help there, uh, something affordable, some sort of reach out, it would have been better. What do we need? What do we need to be doing? We need to show these kids that we actually care about them. Because the counselors that they do send out to deal with these troubled children don't make any connection with them. They've never experienced the lifestyle that these kids love. They don't know where these kids are coming from. So they try to connect with the kids, but the kids will have nothing to do with them because they don't know what they're going through. So we need to get more recovering addicts to reach out to these kids, to explain what they've gone through, how they struggled, what they did to change their lives. Because then at least the kids will listen to them, to a person that has actually experienced what they're going through. Because someone who's never experienced the hardship of addiction, telling a kid that, oh, you're addicted to this, they'll go in one ear or the other. Because the psychiatrist that would come into the hospital to talk to my daughter, they would have her dismissed and discharged within five minutes. By the time I went from the room to go get coffee and come back, they would be out and go, oh, your daughter's fine. And it's like, no, she's not. Well, in our opinion, she's fine. And it's like, a 14-year-old is outsmarting our system. Like, give me a break here. And they would just release her. And it would be the cycle again, and then end up in the hospital. And they'd go, oh, he wants to bring a psychiatrist. Why, what's the point? He's going to ask the textbook questions. She'll answer them and be out within five minutes. And every kid who is going through the same struggles as my daughter did, knows the answers to these questions so that they will never get committed again. Greg, what are you doing for you? What are the next steps? It's okay. Take a deep breath. Yeah. It's a serious topic, and the loss of a daughter is very difficult. But what are you able to do for you? Me, I'm just trying to take day by day not look too far into the future not i don't dwell on the past i can't look at pictures um this summer year we'd be playing our animal holiday so it's at the point where i just cling on to my friends and family is for the support and to get through this and look for the uh, chocolate chip cookie at the end of this road to figure out what the meaning of this hardship that we're going through right now. Because there's got to be a point. My dear daughter did not die for no reason. And I do not want any other parent to go through what I'm going through. 
Greg, you're an amazing father. The fact that you're sharing your story and reaching out to so many others who hear your pain, hear your loss, but also hear your advocacy for what you truly believe, that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. You're welcome. And it is Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. Thanks for spending this portion of your Tuesday morning with us. Karen Litsky, you may not know the name, but she is the MLA candidate for the Conservative Party of BC running in the Vancouver Mount Pleasant by-election. And she has also taken to Twitter with this. And here's a direct quote right off one of her tweets. Women and girls deserve to have their own spaces. Women's sports should be fair and safe, and that can't happen when women are forced to compete against men who have biological advantages. And, uh, well, Karen joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Bruce. Happy to be here. Some might argue this is one of the least woke statements that you can find on Twitter in BC in the past week. Um, Why is this a concern for you? Um, Mainly because it's a concern for so many people. Um, Sport really is an issue that that starts... I mean, it starts in in schools, uh, and it affects even very young children, uh, right up to the elite and international levels of competition, and it's something that people do recreationally. Um, It affects a a, a really, and and it's also, you know, a a, a big uh, interest for a lot of people watching sports. So it affects so many people uh, when sport becomes inherently almost unfair by design, uh, and it really upsets the whole... um, the whole reason that people enjoy sport uh, is sort of to test themselves and to watch people test themselves um, against uh, against a fair, fair, fairly selected group of competitors. And when you throw a wrench into it by putting men into women's competition, it it, it really it, it it upsets the whole premise of the thing. Um, it's a foundational upset to people, um, and and so. You know, my my concern is that there's a lot of people who are very bothered by it, and there's this climate in which we can't talk about it. So I'm finding there's a huge appetite to talk about it, um, and uh, and and very little opportunity for people to do so. Well, we are talking about it here and now, uh, and one of the reasons why we're talking about it is that you have said uh, in the same tweet that this is a front burner issue, and by that I would have to assume that. It's one of the biggest issues right now for you. Am I correct? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the issue of, of transgender ideology overall uh, is one that I, I have taken an interest in. And the more I hear about people's experience, experiences with it, obviously, the more concerned I become. Um, and sport, as I say, it's one that reaches into so many people's lives that I think it's, it's, um, it's, uh, it, it's the optimal one to, uh, to start talking about. Now, one would assume that you want to win uh, in the next election, the by-election coming up in Vancouver, Mount Pleasant. Uh, Do you think that this is so far right that it's going to hurt your chances? You know, right and left just don't apply to to this. Um, This this is an issue that uh, actually cuts all the way across the spectrum to the extent that the spectrum is still valid, which is a different topic. But I think there's... there's, um, in, in fact, there, there are factions on the left, particularly, you know, the women's movement grows out of the left and, and the, uh, 
and and girls and women's sports is is a particular interest. It's always been a very big feminist issue and and a huge way for women to participate in public life. Um, and uh, and so we're we're actually finding that some of the most intense interest and in it and support for for this kind of a policy comes from from the left. So the the um, the left is I mean people are leaving the left in droves, and this is one of the things that they're leaving over. Now, one of the quotes in your release that was tweeted here is, as a former athlete, a field hockey player in high school, competitive swimmer, and also someone who helped build women's uh, bicycle or bicycle racing in this country, you understand that not only does sports extend off the field into change rooms and to travel arrangements, but it's also the performance differences between men and women. What sort of reaction have you got to this uh, release, uh, positive and negative? Um, the response on Twitter has been overwhelmingly positive. Uh, it's the the tweet has gone, uh, yeah, to 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 a level of awareness and response that that I, I haven't had before in a tweet, um, and uh, and it's so so clearly there's a there's a there's a big interest and it's been overwhelmingly positive. There's been very few negative comments, and the ones that are. Uh, the people who are in support of the policy are quickly coming back and 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 discussing it. Now, Twitter is not necessarily emblematic of real life because, on Twitter, so many people are anonymous or rather su- su- <laughs> operating under pseudonyms. Um, so, so they're able to say things there that they aren't able to say in their you know pack meetings at their schools or on their on the, the to, to the to the organizers of their their peewee hockey teams and stuff. Um, so, uh, so, so I've, I find it a really organic um, expression of uh, of the mood on this issue. Now, your leader, MLA John Rustad, uh, you've also said is fully standing behind you. Uh, what has he told you, and what is the the view of the Conservative Party of BC on this issue? Well, he has said that he's uh, prepared to to bring forward um, either legislation, uh, a private member's bill, or a motion on on this subject. Um, with on the premise that it has to be done because government policy has created this uh, this situation, um, so there has to be government policy change in order to to uh, to relieve the the tension that's been created, um, and the support throughout the Conservative uh, Party of BC of of the members that I've met and the the people who've written to me is over uh, also overwhelmingly positive. There are so many issues in BC right now, from healthcare to uh, thinking about the future of the economy in this province. Um, how, where does this one rank? Do you think top five, top three, number one? Well, the funny thing is that it's kind of integrated with all of them. If we talk about transgender ideology in general versus sport, uh, if we're talking about sports specifically. Um, I, I would also put it in the in, in the top five because you you literally cannot have a functioning society if you are, um, you know you're 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 creating unfairness. It's it's like you're conditioning society to quietly accept unfairness and endangerment um, within the context of the rules, and it, it so so it it it, it discombobulates everybody's sense of sense of right and wrong and if you if you don't have a sense of right and wrong or true or false like that you know what a boy is and what a girl is you're literally lying to your kids about boys and girls um you you can't you can't have rational conversations about anything 
because uh, because there is no there's no, no no connection with reality. There's no no moral framework or anything. Um, it's also connected to so many things like healthcare. Um, uh, healthcare has has committed considerable resources and also uh, come very much over in support of uh, the concept of of uh, transitioning sex. Um, so that there's there's a, a huge amount of resources. I mean, at a time when we're starved for basic health care for a lot of people, um, we're we're dealing with this um, w- with this sort of uh, uh, detour in a way into what is what is an anti-health movement. Um, so so it's it's integrated with almost everything, and I I do put it in the in the in the top top five certainly of issues that I think government needs to deal with. Do you think the people of Vancouver Mount Pleasant that are voting in the by election are going to share your view, or a majority majority of the people will share this view, or do you think they might uh, consider this kind of wacky? No, I think it is I I think it is a mainstream view, um, and the question is simply whether people know about our position and also about whether they are are able to change their vote over it i mean we're this is this is one of the strongest ndp ridings in the province if not the strongest and so people are very uh used to to uh being ndp to voting ndp and supporting ndp um but uh and it's hard it's very hard i've done this i'm a former ndp'er myself uh, I sort of started the transition from le- from out of the left probably in the 1990s over issues of literacy, which I saw that the NDP did not support. Um, and and it's hard to leave because you think you're a better person when you're on the left. And then it's it's hard also to join the other side because you think the other side are bad people. So so it's a it's really a, a, a at least a two step process to leave the left and and. Uh, but a lot of people, as I say, a lot of people are doing it over this issue, and um, and and really, this is almost an ideal time to do it because it's only for a one-year term, and yeah. it's not going to change who the government is, um, and so it's 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 not a bad time to try voting something different. And then, if in the general, if people still want the NDP to form government, obviously they can change their vote back. So, uh, certainly, the by-election is an opportunity to send a message. Karen Litsky, thanks so much for sharing uh, with us and uh, coming on the radio to talk about this. This is Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. Now, here's an interesting concept, and I'm going to start by asking if you remember the polar bears that used to be in Stanley Park and that kind of weird enclosure, that white concrete with all the different pools. This goes back a few years. There were four polar bears in that enclosure. Well, the bears are gone. The enclosure is still there. It's in pretty rough shape. Doesn't look good. But now there is a different idea, an idea that maybe... A spa could be put into that enclosure, the bear enclosure, without the bears, of course, but a spa for people. And the park board chair would love to see the idea move forward. Yeah, there are architect sketches on reimagining the enclosure. Now, it's been three decades, but uh, any change, by the way, that does come, it's going to be a long way off. Let's talk with Park Board Commissioner Scott Jensen about this. And um, Scott, this sounds kind of weird, but kind of cool all at once. What do you think? 
Well, I, I agree with you 100%. It does sound pretty interesting, but it, it's pretty cool as well. I will clarify the, the, the opening. Uh, when I say move forward, I, I would like to see this idea move from this conversation starter uh, position that was raised by this, uh, this group um, and have it actually be brought forward to uh, Park Board staff for consideration. Um, once, uh, you know, these ideas are really great ways to repurpose, uh, you know, unimagined areas within our, within our city. And so, you know, when we get these ideas that come forth, it, it really does get the ball mo- moving in regards to what we can do to activate spaces that are currently um, not available for uh, any enjoyment by anybody. Okay, um, let's start with the genesis of this idea. You mentioned a group did come forward. Tell me about that. Um, well, what we received is uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, an email outlining this idea to park commissioners in, in, uh, as an idea and, uh, you know, very clearly stated that this is kind of a conversation starter and that um, they were going to be bringing it forth to the media the following Monday. And uh, since then, uh, we've been talking about it, which, uh, you know, really does, um, you know, really meet the, the goal of that group. And uh, but again, there's a lot of opportunities within our city um, and uh, with our park and, and uh, community facilities that, uh, you know, you know, open minds and, and, and good ideas can, can bring uh, new activation to these spaces. Now, I talked a little bit about this with a family member in advance of our conversation here. And she said, uh, great, something for the rich people in a public space. What do you say to that? I completely agree. And that's one of the, the, the concerns that any idea that's brought forth to the board needs to be uh, brought forth through that lens. And, and that lens is, you know, how do we activate these spaces to make sure that they're utilized by the, the most number of users or by a, se- a segment of our uh our residents that are currently underserved by facilities. And uh, so, yes, those, those would be kind of the concerns that we would be looking at as a board. And, uh, you know, sometimes there are things that come forth that uh, may have a higher price point, but, you know, the cost benefit of coming back to the board might mean, you know, we can activate more programs throughout the city by utilizing that uh, increased revenue. But certainly that would be a big concern uh, that I see from our, the, you know, as I would look at this um, idea coming forth to us. Yeah, I'm looking at the uh, artist's conception here. And it's always dangerous when you get into the game of trying to describe a picture on the radio. But <laughs> what I see is people lounging around these kind of pools. And it's a very modern kind of looking space where people are kind of outside enjoying the park. I could see the idea, the concept behind this, but uh, where do we go from this? How, how does it fit into the future of Stanley Park? What is the vision for the park? Well, a great question, and, and thank you for raising that. And, and really what I think for us as a vision of the park is uh, to look at some of these uh, spaces uh, that are remnants of, of a bygone era and, and looking at ways to either, you know, bring back the natural beauty that was there before or uh, pay uh, much more respect and honor uh, to the people that came before us and, and looking at ways that we can activate, uh, you know, more indigenous tourism or respect to the, the indigenous cultures that, uh, you know, predate us. And so what I look at when we see spaces like this 
you know, um, enclosure, which, you know, simply is the, the city's largest uh, garbage can. Um, and we can look at place, ways to utilize that space in a much better manner. I think that's the, you know, what we want to start looking at moving forward. Yeah, your words, not mine. Worlds, uh, worlds. Uh, the city's <laughs> biggest garbage can. Uh, for those who are not aware, this is not a pretty place right now within the park. Uh, what does it come to? Well, exactly. You know, I think that, uh, you know, my personal belief is, uh, you know, the the removal of the polar bears was the one of the best decisions to, to be made by this uh, park board over the last number of years. And that goes way back. Um, you know, I remember going there as, as a child and, uh, you know, I was not wowed by these polar bears. I was actually just really put in a state of, of depression, looking at the sadness of their faces and uh, never wanting to go back there again. So now we've got this enclosure that I think, you know, kids that are coming to there now look at this, uh, you know, this concrete, uh, brutalish, uh, you know, structure and, and, you know, probably takes away from that, that great experience that they're experiencing, you know, maybe leaving the aquarium and coming out and looking at this and going, whoa, you know, this isn't, uh, you know, the, the experience that I was hoping for. So, um, you know, we do need to look at re, re in, in imagining that space in and around the aquarium, uh, you know, to, you know, make it uh, again, more green, more beautiful, more accessible, um, but again, this conversation starter, um, you know, really does start that uh, ball moving so that we can start looking at this. Yeah, and I agree. I, I remember as a kid seeing the polar bears and thinking to myself, what is the relevance, actually? Not even the sad polar bears, uh, you know, in the summer heat, but what <laughs> yes. is the relevance of having the polar bears in this park? And that's as yes. a kid, you know, but uh, it was a different time back then. And yes, it was. 2023, yeah, is a different time again. And, uh, you know, for this to go forward, uh, there would have to be a whole bunch of questions and procedures. And where would we end up going with an idea like this? What would be the next steps? Well, then, the, well, the first step would be to actually formally bring it to the park board uh, for staff to actually to look at the feasibility of this opportunity. Now, we also have a Stanley Park working group, uh, and uh, that uh, brings in the the indigenous lens as well. And so, when we start looking at you know you know changing anything within that environment, uh, you know, we we have to look at a lot of the um, we have to look under. The, the surface and we need to look archaeologically uh, you know at what was there before and so we want to make sure that we're being re- really respectful as we start to e- even consider ideas within Stanley Park and then as we start to to move forward with those uh, proposals you know if they are respectful if they meet the the uh, expectations of the the board um, you know then we can start activating some of that space but again what I'm looking at right now uh, is simply a conversation starter and that conversation to me is Let's do something with this concrete uh, bowl, this, you know, again, the city's largest garbage can. Um, right. And, um, and, and, and do something with that. And, and you know, within my term, uh, you know, I believe we can do something to make this space um, a space where people can come and gather. And again, that could be a learning center. It could be, you know, a space where you can connect to uh, understanding the effects of, of global climate change. Um, but there is so much more that we can do to that space than what it currently is. And, um, you know, if in the end, the, the best idea and an idea that receives a lot of support from 
a broad scope of, of Vancouverites uh, is some sort of uh, spa. Uh, maybe that's the idea, but you know, right now um, that's overshooting and, and, and looking at something well, well beyond the, you know, the, the next immediate steps for us. Scott, if not a spa, it's got to be something else. Uh, let's hope it's not going to be concrete forever uh, with this big garbage hole. Uh, kind of a blight in one of the more beautiful spots in the country. But uh, what are some other options that you might even think uh, could be looked at for that space? Well, again, if I'm just thinking off the top of my head, and nobody, and again, and this is the great thing about this proposal, nobody else has brought forth anything up to this point that I'm aware of. And so there might have been something brought that predates my term, but uh, up to this point, this is the first conversation starter about this area. And again, just off the top of my head, I, I would really like to see something that would connect uh, uh, to the history of Indigenous peoples that live there uh, uh, much longer than we've been around and a, a great educational centre for people to come from around the world and understand more about the rich history that uh, this uh, community has. Um, and other than that, we could also look at, you know, understanding, you know, uh, doing a, you know, an area that looks at uh, the, the changing effects of, of climate on Vancouver. Um, but there's a lot of things that uh, could be used in that space because it is a big space. And so um, anything other than what it is now is an improvement. That being said, um, it would be great if we can make an improvement that, that really creates a new legacy moving forward for our city and for our park. Indeed. Uh, Scott, before I let you go on, just the newsroom is kind of uh, curious about this one. And I just have to ask you the question because we have you right now. You know, second beach pool hours, a lot of controversy about uh, it not being open in the morning. Um, What's going on there? Are you going to change your mind? Well, what was originally done was that uh, due to the, the closure of Kitts Beats for the uh, the maintenance that was required there, uh, the second pool was open to uh, ensure that there was access within that uh, broad neighborhood. And again, <laughs> uh, Kitts End and Second Beach are, are a bit of a distance away. But uh, accommodations were being made so that early morning swim hours were being provided at Second Beach while Kits was being uh, finalized. Now that Kits Pool is open and it has returned to its regular morning hours, um, the expectation is that uh, people would be returning back to that pool for that uh, to utilize those early morning swim hours. Um, what I'm seeing now is that uh, you know there's a segment of the, of the population that has um, you know grown to enjoy the experience at uh, the Second Beach Pool. So that's something that have to look at considering um, because, um, you know, if that pool is available and we have a desired group of people that would like to access it, that's something that we would be looking at doing. And, and certainly I've already forwarded those inquiries forward. Um, you know, that being said, um, you know, we are currently um, you know, working on getting up to our 470 lifeguards that are necessary to adequately staff all of our facilities across the city. And uh, more and more of that is starting to come back as uh, uh, our lifeguards come back from their summer or their, their winter schooling. And uh, so if we're able to get staffing and, and there is a, um, uh, that segment of the population that is really excited about said this second beach pool, um, having morning hours, that's something that we'd be concerned. Okay, Scott, thanks for your time.